the walls of this city will fall down flat. Go in the strength you have and save Israel. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight. You will shepherd my people. You will become their ruler. You may remember if you were here a few months ago that we were in a series that we were calling Origin Story, the Pentateuch. And in that series, we looked at the first five books of the Bible. We got an overview this week, uh, each week because I want you to see, and we're going to continue this for a long time, this series. We'll be doing a little bit of it every year. But by the time we finish this series, you will see how the complete Bible fits together. For example, if you go back to the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we learned that Genesis is the book of beginnings. Everything that had a beginning began in the, in the book of Genesis. But one of the things that began in the book of Genesis was the Hebrew race. Because remember, God came to Abraham and said, through you is going to come a great nation. Your descendants are going to be like the stars. And that nation, through that nation, it's going to bless all the people, all the family of the earth. And what God was saying was, Abraham, through your lineage, is going to come the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Everybody's going to have the opportunity to be restored back into a relationship with me. That's good stuff, right? And you begin to see that story unfold in the book of Genesis. And by the time you get to the end, uh, we get to one of our favorite Old Testament stories. It's a story about Joseph. Remember, Joseph had the coat of many colors, but he also had 11 brothers who hated him for having the coat of many colors, for being daddy's favorite, right? So they sold him. And where did Joseph end up? He ended up in Egypt, and that's where all of a sudden he, through a, a lot of amazing things, through hard work, through God's anointing on his life, he was promoted to the place of prime minister. He knew that there was going to be a famine that hit the land. He prepared Egypt for the famine, so he got to be prime minister. At the meantime, back where his family lived in the land, they, they didn't have any food. The famine had hit, so what did they do? They come to, they come to Egypt to find grain to get food. And they realize that Joseph is the prime minister and there's a great family reunion and the family's restored. And we come to the end of the book of Genesis. When we open the book of Exodus, it tells us right away that Joseph's family, all of them had settled in Egypt and that they were a very prolific people. That's what it says. They had now grown to a nation. In fact, there were so many Hebrew people, they had become a threat to the nation of Egypt. And so the Egyptians decided, we better make them our slaves. And so they made them slaves, and they were slaves in Egypt for 430 years until God raised up Moses to be the deliverer. And he went before Pharaoh, and he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. And he said, let them go. Nope. And this went on, and finally the plagues came, and, and Pharaoh said, get them out of here, right? And so Moses let them out. They crossed the Red Sea. This is the book of Exodus. And while they're in the desert, God begins to prepare them. He gives them the Ten Commandments. But see, they had never been free before. They had never had the freedom to worship the true God before. So when you get to the book of Leviticus, it's like a picture book of worship. It teaches these Hebrew people how to worship. You learn about the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the importance of the priests and the sacrifices. We talked about when Jesus came and fulfilled the old covenant, how he represented, how he filled those sacrifices. And we don't need priests and blood sacrifice anymore. Jesus took care of our sin once and for all. But that was the book of Leviticus. 
And then when you get to the book of Numbers, now they're ready to worship God. Now they're ready to move into the promised land. They get right up to the Jordan River, which is the border of the promised land. And they say, hey, listen, we got to do our due diligence. And so they send in the 12 spies, right? And the 12 spies come back. Ten say, we can't take it. Two say, yes, we can. But they sided with the ten, and they decided not to go in. In other words, God said, I've already given it to you, but they decided they were too afraid to go in. And so God says, listen, I'm going to give you 40 years to think about it. So they walked around the wilderness for 40 years. Okay, that's the book of Numbers. When you get to the book of Deuteronomy, they are back at the border of the promised land. They are at the Jordan River looking over into the promised land. And Moses stops them there and says, before we go in, there's some things I want to tell you. There's some things that God expects of us as we get into the promised land. And you can read basically five different messages that Moses gave in the book of Deuteronomy. And that's where we ended our series. We ended them standing on the side of the Jordan River, across from the promised land. Now we're picking up the series. We're calling it Welcome to the Promised Land. And over the next five weeks, and I'm excited to be here all of this series, we're going to be over, uh, giving an overview of the book of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, one of my favorite books in the Bible, then First and Second Samuel. So we'll, we'll be looking at the life of King David. So we've made our way through the first five books. Now we have them waiting to get into the promised land. We've come to the book of Joshua. And let me just say this. The book of Joshua, you're going to see this weekend, it is a book about victory. It's a book about conquest. It's a book about walking by faith. I mean, they're getting ready to go into this new land, the promised land that God has already promised them. God says, listen, I've done my part. Now I need you to do your part. By the way, a lot of people believe that the promised land represents heaven for the Christian. That's not true. Do you know why? The promised land had enemies and obstacles. Heaven's not going to have any enemies and obstacles. What the, what the promised land represents is basically this. Every day of our life as Christians, we're going to battle enemies. We're going to come up against obstacles. And if we drive the enemies out of our life, we're going to live the victorious life that Christ died for us to experience. But if we begin to tolerate the enemies and we don't run them out of our lives, they're going to make us miserable all of our days, even as Christians. So that's really what we're talking about. You'll see that parallel. Let me just begin by giving you some introductory background about the book of Joshua, the title, for example. Obviously, uh, the, the book is named after the hero in the book. His name is Joshua. Uh, you can see in Joshua chapter 1, he's commissioned. He dies in chapter 24 of Joshua. And so really, this book is kind of like a journal of Joshua's life. And one of the earliest references to Joshua, you can see in Exodus chapter 24, verse 12. It says, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here. And I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. So this is when they're, they're making their way from Egypt to the promised land the first time. Then Moses set out, who? With Joshua, there's our guy, his aid, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. So in the earliest record of Joshua, he's Moses' servant. He's like his trainee. He's kind of like an intern. But I want you to understand there's a historic link between the great deliverer Moses and Joshua. You can see that in Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. How cool would that be, right? Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the tent. So understand, Joshua and Moses, they're kind of like linked at the hip. Now, there's a great lesson here, by the way. If you want to be a person of God, spend time with people of God. Find somebody that you say, like, man, if I could be a Christian, I would want to be like that person. And then find out, will you spend time with me? Learn their ways. Learn how it's done. Learn what their strategy was for character development. It is so important. By the way, just so you know, 
This is the way young men and women used to be trained for ministry before they came up with the idea of cemeteries. I mean, seminaries. But uh, this is what you just took someone under your wing. And so that's what Moses is doing with Joshua. He took him under his wing. There's one more reference to Joshua that I want you to see in Deuteronomy chapter 31. It says in verse 24, the Lord said to Moses, now the day of your death is near. Call Joshua and present yourself at the tent of meeting where I will commission him. So Moses and Joshua came and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. And if you drop down to verse 23, the Lord gave this command to Joshua, son of Nun, be strong and courageous for you will bring the Israelites into the land. I promised them on oath. Now notice what God says, and I myself will be with you. Now, why is that so important? Well, I mean, think about this. How do you think Joshua felt in this moment? He is following the great Moses. I mean, he's been alongside Moses for all these years. He's watched him. He's observed him. He's learned from him. He's had all of the blessings of being right beside Moses, right? He's right there when the Red Sea parted. He's got all of those blessings, right, without any of the responsibility. But now Moses is going to die. And God says, Joshua, guess what? You're going to be the one that leads the people into the promised land. He didn't know he would be the guy, but he's the guy. So in Joshua chapter 1, we pick up where we left off our series last time in Deuteronomy. Uh, Moses dies. The people mourn Moses' death for a 30-day period of time. And then God tells Joshua, okay, done. Mourning is over. It's time to move on. It's time to move forward. And I'm sure that Joshua at this point, as he's thinking about, you know, Moses just died. You know what he's thinking? Who's my spiritual leader going to be? Who's my mentor going to be to now? Who am I going to uh, mentor to me going to be now? Who am I going to turn to when I, when I hit tough times in my life? So right away, God lets Joshua know, listen, Joshua, you cannot live in Moses' shadow. You got to step up, buddy. You got to grow up. It's time to take the lead. In fact, look at the promise that he made to Joshua. Joshua chapter 1, verse 3. I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. In other words, the land's yours. Just like I promised Moses, the land is yours. You just need to take it. I've done my part. You need to do your part. And the land is described in Joshua chapter 1, verse 4. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. By the way, this is one of the reasons why you hear so much tension in the Middle East. See, what Israel is their land, they claim to be their land. This is land that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. God says, this is going to be your land. They don't like people trying to take their land. So, you know, sometimes you have to get the biblical perspective on things. Now, at this moment, when Joshua is thinking about, wow, we're going to have to take over all this land, I think he is probably scared spitless. Like, I don't know if I can do this. So God lets Joshua know that Moses may be gone, but Joshua, you can count on my presence. You can see it in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. By the way, that's a thing. Seven times if you look, you'll see that God said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do you know what that tells me about Joshua? He wasn't strong and courageous. So God had to keep reinforcing. You can do this. Be strong. Be courageous, right? Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Now notice, notice the promise that comes with obedient, being obedient to God's word. Then you will be prosperous and successful. By the way, that doesn't mean that you're going to be rich. 
It doesn't say if you obey God's word, you're going to be rich. It means, it means that you're going to be in the sweet spot of God's will. And when you're in the sweet spot of God's will, when you know you're exactly where God wants you to be in life, as you're going to see in this book, it's like you feel like you're invincible. I mean, you feel like you have this God confidence. So it's, God, I'm right where you want me to be. I can handle anything that comes my way. Now, let me just say the theme of this book is this. Faith leads to victory. And it's still true in our lives today. It's faith that leads to victory. It's not common sense. It's not how smart we are. It's not how we figure things out. It's faith that leads to victory as Christians in our lives. It's as if God said, I've already given you the land. I've done my part. Now you got to do your part and you will take the land by faith. You will take it by trusting me. So Joshua steps up. He becomes the leader of these people. And I want you to see the amazing things in the book of Joshua that they were able to do because they were a unified group around, around their leader. Here's the first sign of unity. By the way, this isn't really a message that Hope Community Church needs. It's more of a reminder of God's faithfulness. We're 25 years old as a church. You know, there's probably about 15,000 people that show up every month, you know, for, so that, that we're reaching a lot of people every month. And you know that in 25 years of, of business meetings, you know, they're approving millions of dollars worth of budgets for staff and, and building buildings and, and building campuses and all the ministries that we do and all the money that goes around the world and all the money that we invest in our community and, and voting on who's going to be our elders, who are going to lead us. Do you know in 25 years, we've only had seven no votes? I'm telling you, that is incredible unity for a church. That is incredibly rare. rare. If, you, if, you're, if you grew up Baptist, you know what I'm talking about. You know, there's an old verse, wherever there's two or three Baptists gathered in God's name, there's at least four opinions. Right, right. And that, that, hasn't, that hasn't been the case. So we've been an incredibly unified church. And so this is just a reminder of when we maintain this lifestyle, these kinds of relationships, how God, what God can do. Here's the first sign of unity. I noticed in this story, the Israelites rallied around their leader without fear. Now, you got to remember, these guys have still not stepped foot into the promised land. They can look over the Jordan River. It's not that big. They can see the promised land. It's right there before them. They've heard the story. They know that their parents, last time they were there, balked. They bailed, and they ended up wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. They're like, we're not going to make that mistake. So this time, they are ready to go in. They're ready to move forward. And I want you to notice as Joshua stands before the people and says, this is what we're going to do. This is what it's going to look like when we get into the land. These are the cities we're going to come up against. We're going to run the enemy out of the land. I want you to notice how they respond to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verse 16. They said in verse 16, whatever you have commanded us, we will do. That's cooperation. Wherever you send us, we will go. That's availability. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. That's a stretch. That's a stretch of the imagination. That's why they did not fully obey Moses. Remember the whole golden calf and all that stuff? But they're kind of like, you know, the old bumper sticker? The older I get, the better I was. And so they're thinking, they, they remember themselves being better than they really were. But they said, you know, we're, we're, we're going to obey you. That's commitment. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he has with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey your words, whatever you may command them will be put to death. I'm telling you, people, that's loyalty. That's loyalty right there. I got a good friend, and he's not a Christian, and uh, he's very, very Italian. In fact, he hasn't been in America long. And I, I one time asked him, I said, and I love this guy. I mean, he's one of my best friends. I said, are you in the mafia? He said, we don't talk that way. But anyway, well, one time I had had a really bad meeting one morning. I know that's hard for you to believe as pastors. We had, I mean, it just really shook me up with a couple of people. And uh, I had to go to his restaurant for lunch. 
And so I got there, and he wasn't there that day, but his wife was there, and she saw me walking in, and she could see the tension and stress on my face. And she said, are you okay? And she went to give me a hug, and I said, yeah. I said, you think your husband would take out a couple of people? And she pushed me back. She said, don't even kid with him about that. He would, he would do that for you. That's loyalty, so you better be nice to me. But anyway, anyway. And then he says, only be strong and courageous. That's encouragement. So think about it. There's cooperation, there's availability, there's commitment, there, there, there's loyalty, and there's encouragement. See, those are words that describe a unified group of people. Now, let's be honest. It's easy to make those kinds of statements when there's nothing on the line. But the plot thickens. Up until now, it's been fun and games. Nobody's had to fight. Nobody's had to die. There hasn't been, they didn't even have to get their shoes wet. God just opened up the Jordan River the very same way that he opened up the Red Sea, and they just walked across into the promised land. But immediately, they're faced with the city of Jericho. And maybe you're new to church, you didn't grow up in Sunday school, and you're thinking, well, what's the big deal about Jericho? Well, for starters, it was strategic because of the location. It was right in the center of Palestine, and the Israelis knew that if they could take Jericho, it was going to give them a tremendous military advantage. But there's one major obstacle to taking the city of Jericho. For all of you who grew up in Sunday school, what is it? The wall, all three of you. Yeah, Joshua with the battle of Jericho and the wall. You see, I'll never do that again. But anyway, it was the wall. It was the wall that surrounded the city. Now, thanks to archaeologists. You see, for years, archaeologists could not discover the city of Jericho. And it's like, see, it was just a myth that never happened. I'm telling you, archaeologists never disprove the Bible. They just prove it time and time again that it's real. Because guess what? They came across the city of Jericho. And through the archaeology, we now know that the wall wasn't a single wall. It was actually a double wall. And the, there, there, there was an outer wall that was about six feet thick. Then there was about four yards of space. And there was an inner wall that surrounded the city of Jericho. It was 12 feet thick, about 30 feet high, which is about three stories. may not sound like a big deal to us. But it's an incredible obstacle for people who have never been fighters, never been warriors. I mean, these, real, these guys, the Hebrew people, they're really good at being slaves and making bricks. See, they did that for 430 years. They're really, really good at walking. I mean, good gracious, you know, they walked around for 40 years in the wilderness. Warriors, not so much. But that brings us to Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. Now, the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. They knew they were coming. They were prepared for them. No one went out. No one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. It's a done deal. I've done my part. I just need you to do your part. And in verse 3, he begins to tell Joshua what his part is for taking the city. This is what he says. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. Not Noah's ark. That would be too big. It's the ark of the covenant, right? On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. And it is a brilliant plan because it's just so stupid. I mean, can you imagine Joshua now having to go back to his captains, his lieutenants, his sergeants? And they're like, okay, what are we going to do? Okay, get, get a piece of paper. Let me give you a plan. Here's the plan. Starting tomorrow, we're going to get up. First thing in the morning, we're going to walk around the city. They're just staring at me. He said, write it down. Walk around city. We're going to do that one time every day for six days. Walk around city one time every day for six days. Okay. When are the Black Hawk helicopters coming in? What's next? I mean, how about the catapults, right? No, like, what? Listen, seventh day, write this down. We're walking around seven times. Walk around city seven times. Then what do we do? Well, you priests over here, bring your 
trumpets. You're going to blow the trumpets. And here's the big one, guys. When they blow their trumpets, we're going to shout. And the walls are going to fall down. Any questions? I mean, can you imagine telling that, you know, in the war room, right? But this is what's interesting. The beautiful part of this story is when he tells them this illogical plan, there's no resistance. There's no reluctance whatsoever. Read the story. There's nowhere in the story where these guys go back to their tent and say, I think Joshua's been... You know, I mean, you know, I mean this, this, this makes no sense whatsoever. This plan just stinks. You don't see that. You don't see that at all. They're like, okay, all right, if that's what we're going to do, let's go put our walking shoes on. Now, why would they respond that way? They're unified. And again, these aren't the, these aren't the Israeli army of the 21st century. You know, I lead a tour to Israel about every 12 to 18 months, and we have a guide there. And uh, he, you know, when you're in Israel, you college kids will appreciate this, you high schoolers, when you graduate from high school, you automatically serve three years in the Israeli army. I think it's a brilliant idea. In fact, these, you know what they tell me? By the time you get out of the army, you're really, you're serious about your education, right? And, uh, but it was a pretty good idea. So he was in military intelligence. And uh, he said, listen, he says, uh, I said, you know, when we're watching the news back home, you'd like, you'd be scared to come to the Middle East, scared to come to Israel. And, but when you go, it's like Shangri-La. It's, it's, you, I've never felt more safer than when I'm in Israel. And he says, well, Mike, this is why. He says, if a Hamas lobs one of their little rockets over at us, it goes about 20 yards and explodes. This is what we do. We know exactly where it came from. We know what window it came out of. And so we let them know. We send them a message and let them know, this time tonight, we're blowing this place off the face of the earth. We recommend you don't be there. And right on schedule, a missile goes right back in that window where the other one came off, and they just, they just don't put up with stuff. This is not those guys. These guys are not fighting men. What we're reading about in Joshua, not fighting men. See, these, these guys are backpackers. I mean, they've been in the wilderness for 40 years walking around. They walked through the Red Sea. They walked across the Jordan. Now they're getting ready to walk around the city. It's like God said, well, they're really good at walking. Let's play to their strength. So let's just let them walk, right? And so, so they're going to walk around. By the way, can you imagine the guards on the wall of Jericho? Hey, Fred, here they come again. Then you're sitting there. And there they go again. The Israelis, they go back to their camp, order a pizza, watch some TV, take a shower, get up the next day, do it all over again, right? Six days, nothing changed. Finally, the seventh day arrives, and they follow directions to a T. They march seven times around the city. And just when they're finishing up, the priests blow the horn, and the people shout, and the walls collapse. But do you know what the moment of truth is? It's the very same way in our life when God calls us to do something. It's the seventh day. It's the seventh time around it's right after the priests blow the horn and right before they shout because either the walls are going to fall down or they're going to look like the biggest idiots in the world, right? I mean, have you ever given something sacrificially? You'll see Laura and I have done this. Like, God, we're going to give this, but I don't, if you don't do something, uh, the mortgage company is not going to be really happy with us next week. And it's like at that last moment, somehow God will just incredibly provide. But it's that last moment, right? That's what's going on with these guys. But see, when they shouted, the wall came down. And the amazing thing is this, you don't read anybody about anybody anywhere being surprised by the wall collapsing, which brings us to the second sign of unity. The Israelites were willing to accept a new plan without resistance. I mean, this strategy was unusual, to say the least. But they're like, you know what? Let's just trust God and let's just go for it. Let's just go for it. Now, I'll be honest with you. I am not really sure, and this, you'll, this will really make you have a lot of confidence in me as your leader. I'm not really sure what we'll even be doing in the next two years at Hope. I mean, we got all kind of plans. I mean, we know we're going to launch a Garner campus. 
uh, in just a few months in September. We know that's going to happen. We know that there's a church in Fuquay that has said, can we come become a part of Hope Community Church? By the way, we have 13 acres in Fuquay. We could maybe launch a campus in Fuquay, and we're coming down to the end of, of, of that to see if that's going to be reality or not. I just, I, you know, I grew up in Durham. I grew up on Austin Avenue in Durham, right? And uh, I, I mean, I, I, got this, I got this passion to have a Hope Community Campus in Durham because you know what? Austin Avenue is still as bad as it was when I was a kid. And I'm like, they need the hope of the gospel. They need a hope like hope. So I met with a guy. This guy's in charge of real estate. I don't even know how he, why he met with me. He's in charge of real estate for Duke University. In other words, he's in charge of everything they buy off, off of campus to develop. And he had breakfast with me. And he says, what we're looking for are maybe churches like you that want a campus, and then we could use the facility during the week for mental health issues and, and care and different things like that. So I, and so I said, do you have any ideas? And he said, well, on Austin Avenue, this is three blocks from where I grew up, there's a boy and girls club sitting there empty for sale. I said, how much? He said, three million. I'm like, man, we're gonna have to walk around that thing a lot, right, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I say, I know what God's, I used to play little league baseball behind that place. I know exactly where it is. And you know, you may not know this, but our Apex campus is, it's a community center. It's 110,000 squeaks, it's got double basketball courts, it's got a weight room, aerobics and yoga and all that stuff they do out there. And, and it's for the community to come in. We do after-school tutoring and all those things. I thought, we already know how to do that. We could walk right into this girls' and boys' club, have, have, have worship on the weekends in the gym. We could fix it up, use it during the week to reach that community. There's lots of opportunities out there. But here's what I know. Man makes his plans. God directs his steps. But here's the thing. Because God has been faithful because he's blessed us in the past, I'm just naive enough to think that he's going to continue to bless us. But the bottom line is this. I'm just telling you. We are allowing God to stretch us as a church like never before. And we're just moving forward with that absolute confidence that God is 100% in control of Hope Community Church. You see, Joshua had never seen this strategy before. But he said, you know what? God said, do it. Let's do it. And they did it. And I am just simple enough to believe that the same kind of thing can happen with us. But that's the exciting part of being part of a ministry that is, that is unified. Now, when you get to chapter 8, these Hebrew people, they arrive at the city of Ai. And they're a little nervous because they've already had their butts kicked once. Because they went into Ai and God gave them a plan and they didn't follow God's plan. So now they're going back with their tail tucked between their legs. And they're a little nervous because this is the second time. But you got to understand, they decide this time, you know what, maybe we should just do it God's way, right? But the city of Ai is going to involve a totally different strategy than the city of Jericho. It's going to be totally different. So here's the third sign of unity. The Israelites worked as a team, you'll see that, to accomplish the objective without jealousy or competition. Now, if you read Joshua chapter 8, and I hope you'll read it on your own, I'll give you a quick overview. It's an ambush plan. Joshua sends 30,000 of his best fighting men. He says, I want you to go behind the city and hide out of sight. And then once they're hidden and in place, Joshua takes a much smaller group and he looks like that he is attacking the city of Ai. Now the Aiites are looking out the city and thinking, well, that's it, we can take them. So they open the gates and they come out to fight. And when they come out to fight, Joshua says, retreat! And they take off running. And the Aiites go chasing them. Joshua said, when they start chasing us, you guys that have been hiding out, you come around front, you run in and take the city. We'll have them sandwiched between, we will wipe them out. It is a great plan. And it worked. But what you got to remember is this. Some of the people got to be with Joshua. Some of the people had to be with other leaders. Some of the people got to be in the forefront. Some of the people had to be in the shadows. In other words, they were all involved, but only one group got the spotlight. Only one group was really 
getting the glory. But that doesn't seem to bother them. You don't find anybody in Joshua chapter 8 saying, I never get to be in Joshua's group, you know. I don't know why I couldn't ambush. I just took Strength Finder, and I'm really good at I'm really good at ambushing, you know, sneaking around and stuff. In fact, I got to I didn't show this at the other services, but since you guys are here, I'll show it to you. My five year old graduated from preschool. I don't know why they do that. You know, when I was a kid, you gra- when you graduated from high school, you got something. Now you got something. You get something, but walking across the street, you get a diploma. But anyway. So I went to her graduate. She hates being in front of people. So the minute the kids came out and 30 of them lined across the stage, she just sat on the floor Indian style, the only one. When it came time to get their diplomas, she would not move. So every kid had to walk by her, go across the stage, get their diploma, and come back, walk over and go back to their spot. But I want you to show you what she did when they called her name, because she was not going to get up and walk. This just happened Friday afternoon. Papa's proud moment. That's her. Going to get her diploma. And of course, we rewarded her for that behavior by giving her a Barbie doll because that's what you do. That's what, that, that's what you do, right? Has nothing to do with the message, but grandkids are great. I tell my kids all the time if I'd have known how great grandkids were, I would have skipped you guys and went straight, straight, straight to the, the grandkids, right? But nobody was like, man, I'm really good at sneaking around. Look at this. I can pull this off, right? But listen, here's the thing. The Israelites worked as a team to accomplish the objectives without jealousy or competition. And they were able to pull off the impossible because they were unified. Years ago, I was looking at a picture of Ronald Reagan. And there was a, there was a little plaque on his desk. And I zeroed in on it. And, and this is what it said. I actually bought the same plaque. I went on and found it. It's on my desk at home. There is no limit to what a man can do or where he can go if he doesn't mind who gets the credit. Let me tell you something. If you're one of those people at church that you just need the credit, you need to be stroked constantly. Um, if you're one of those guys that every time somebody has an idea, say, I had that idea. That was my idea first. I suggested that first. If you're one of those people, you'll always be a part of the challenge. But if you're just willing to do the thing that God has gifted you to do, called to do, play the role that he's put you to play, even in obscurity, I'm telling you, you're part of the solution. But understand the victory at AI was possible because everybody was just willing to do their thing. Everybody was willing to play their role, and that's just a part of unity. Let's wrap this up. When you get to chapter 10, one more sign of unity. These guys are tired, they're exhausted. You know, they had to battle in Jericho. They had to go into AI twice. The end is in sight. They got one more battle, but it's big because the five kings of the Amorites, and we'll see more about these guys in the book of Judges. The five kings of the Amorites, they realized the only way we're going to stop this Hebrew juggernaut is to bring all of our armies together. So they amassed this huge army, and it says in chapter 10, verse 8, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. I've already given you the victory. I've already done my part. I just need you to do your part. And you see Joshua's part. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road, um, going up to Beth Horon, and cut them down all the way to Ezekiah and Makeda. Verse 11, as they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Ezekiah, the Lord hurled large hailstones. You experienced that recently? Down on them. And more of them died from the hell than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. What's going on here? God knew they were tired. 
God knew they were battle-weary, battle-fatigued. He knew they were exhausted, just like God knows how much you can handle and what's too much. And God knew they couldn't stand any more, so God came to their rescue, and these Hebrew people, they sat back and watched as God said, let me take care of this, boys. And he sent down hailstones, and he finished off the enemy. Here's the fourth sign of unity. As the Israelites' trust in God grew, and as their unity increased, they felt invincible. They felt invincible. And in fact, look at how Joshua's faith has grown. Remember earlier, God had to keep saying, be strong and courageous. Come on, you can do this. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Now look at Joshua by the time you get to chapter 10, verse 12. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, look at this, sun, stand still over Gibeon. That's a bold prayer. God stopped the sun right there. Here, look at Moon over the valley of Ajalon. Notice this. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. This is what I've learned over the years of following God. I'm learning that God, if you trust him, if you walk by faith, that when he comes to your assistance at those critical times in your life, you you start to feel invincible. But not only that, you begin to trust him for more boldness. I remember when we started the church, and again, Probably the only thing in my life I really got right, I felt like God says, if you don't do this, you will be in complete disobedience. It was to totally walk away from our nice, cushy life in California and move here and start life all over to start Hope Community Church. But we knew God had called us to do it. But I tell you what, it didn't, it wasn't, it didn't go very well. And I'll never forget, we, we were just struggling, and I, I was really questioning God. Did I miss something? Was I wrong? What happened? And we were at something like the Golden Corral one night. And uh, we were standing in line, you know, where you, before you, you buy. We're a very classy family. And uh, we're going to belly up to the trough there. And um, there's these other families in line. It was kind of slow. So like, who are you guys? Well, we're Mike and Laura. What do you guys do? Well, we moved here to start a church. Oh, what's the name of your church? Hope Community Church. And they're like, wow, maybe we'll come visit. These two or three families. Maybe we'll come visit. I'm like, nah, I, I wouldn't. We, we kind of suck. We're just not, we're not, we're not very good. But give us a couple years. Give us a couple years. And, but on a Sunday morning, I was about as low, the next one, I was about as low as you could possibly be. And I'm standing out in front of our little church thing. And I'm like, God, I said, I hate to ask, but I, I just need a sign. I just, I just need you to do something. Just throw me a bone. Just give me some kind of sign to let me know that this is where I'm supposed to be. And I'm telling you, when I opened my eyes from praying, these cars pulled in that I had never seen before. And these three families that I had encouraged not to come to our church (laughs) showed up the next day. And they became a permanent part of Hope Community Church. See, here's the thing. As you pray bold prayers and as you trust God and as you just move forward, you know what God starts to do? He starts to remove the barriers so that not your plan, so that his plan can be accomplished for your life. See? A great story. Joshua, a great book of the Bible. How do we avoid the things that sow disharmony so that we can experience unity, so we can operate the way God wants us to operate? Maybe this is a church thing because I think we always need a refresher, but maybe it has to do with a roommate. Maybe it has to do in a marriage, maybe a child and a parent, maybe a neighbor, and there's tension in your relationships. Let me just give you some things that, that bring unity into in, in oneness into our relationships. Here's the first one. Let's work hard at understanding one another. 
We have thousands of people that attend here. We, we're, we're a very diverse congregation. But this is why I say that. Do you know what I've discovered about myself? I tend to judge other people based on their actions. But I want people to judge me based on my intentions. You ever said that? You shouldn't feel that way. You know my heart. You know my heart. You know I wouldn't mean that, right? What do we want? We want them to judge us. But what do we do? We judge them based on their, on their actions. And so I've learned in my life, one of the things that keeps me from being offended and throwing up walls is just, Mike, just calm down. Don't just jump to a conclusion. And so when you have an encounter with someone and it doesn't go the way you wanted it to go, just, just try to remember that things like stress, you don't know what that person's going to. Things like life experience, things like maturity level, those kind of things affect the way we act and react. And so I just, you know, when I have a weight person wait on me, I could get the worst service in the world. But I've learned to think, maybe she's a single parent, has got a sick kid at home. Or he's a college student and this is his third job. Or maybe they have a migraine, I get that. And I just remove that factor out and I'm like, I'm going to tip them. I'm going to be generous. I don't really, really care. But you got to stop and think that way. So pause long enough to try and understand where they may be coming from, and it will give you some perspective. And that just really helps us not to jump to conclusions and throw up walls in the process. That would be the first one. Let's work hard at understanding one another. We're a lot of people. we got, we got to work at that. Here's the second one. Let's be more intentional about taking the high road and forgiving. And I don't say this a whole lot because I know it offends people, but you need to understand, not every conflict in your life needs to be resolved. Sometimes it's okay just to let it go. Sometimes it's okay just to take the high road. See, I think part of being an adult, especially you grow up as a Christian, is, see, you don't always need to make sure that your voice is heard. So we live in a world now like, oh, you got to hear my voice. I got to, you know, no, not really, not really. I doubt that many of us would be married if we always felt like our voice has to be heard. You don't always have to have the last word. Sometimes you can just let it roll off your back like duck, like water off a duck's back and say, you know what? I think I'll just take the high road on this one. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to count that as an offense. You say, well, Mike, how in the world do you live that way? I'll give you a verse, Colossians 3.13, forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's a good place to start. Because how did God forgive us? Totally and unconditionally. By the way, do you know what that verse means? It assumes that we're going to hurt each other. It assumes, it assumes that we're going to offend each other. So what do you say we stop being shocked? You know, you ever say, I can't believe, yes you can, we're jerks. Well, I mean, that's why we're, we're all capable of offending each other at any time. So let's learn to sometimes just let it go. I mean, I, let's, listen, we just live in a culture now, like everybody's walking around with a chip on their shoulder, like, I dare you knock this off. I dare you say one thing to offend me. You know, maybe it was never meant to be offensive and maybe you just need to take the high road. Maybe you need to give them the benefit of the doubt. And if that should be true anywhere, it ought to be in the church of Jesus Christ. Now here's, here's the third one. Let's start giving. This has nothing to do with money. When you feel taken advantage of by someone, you know what you should do? Give them your prayers. You know what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 27? He said, hey, here's an idea. Pray for those who mistreat you. I will tell you from experience, it is almost impossible to pray for someone and at the same time remain hostile to them. You can't do it. You can't do it. Give them acts of kindness. A little something, a card that says, you know, just like, like it never even happened. You know, go slow. You don't want to freak them out, right? Because they'll wonder what you're up to. But can you imagine the example we'd be to the rest of the world if we could hang together like the people of Israel with this kind of unity, you know? 
You know what Jesus said in John 17 when he prayed? It really was the Lord's Prayer. He said, Father, may all my believers, all those who become believers, all of those follow me, may they be unified in one as we are one. So the world may look at them and say, wow, Jesus must have come from the Father. That was his plan for reaching the world, our unity. He said this in John 13, verse 35, that the world will know you're my disciples if you compete with one another. Nah. If you fight with one another, nope. If you compare yourselves to one another, nope, he didn't say that. He said, they'll know you're my disciples if you love one another. If there's that kind of unity. I'm telling you, we need unity. And when it works the way God designed it, it is an amazing thing to sit back and watch. And you can see this in the book of Joshua. Now, next week we're going to look at the book of Judges. And it's going to amaze you the contrast. Because what we saw in Joshua is what it looks like, what life can be like when you drive the enemies out. But Judges is what happens when you allow the enemies to stay. And next week, I'm gonna, if, if I had 30 minutes and I could speak to the nation, if I could be Billy Graham for 30 minutes, this is the message I would preach to our country. Because my working title for next week's message is this, is America Too Young to Die. And I'm going to show you the parallel between the, in the falls of Israel in the book of Judges and the parallels to our country today. And I promise you, it is going to send a chill up and down your spine. And I'm going to give you the cycle of great civilizations that last about 300 years, by the way. And I'm going to let you see where you think we are on the cycle. But I'm telling you, the contrast between doing life God's way and compromising and cutting corners and allowing things into our lives that shouldn't be there, it's going to blow your mind. I think every middle schooler, every high schooler, every college kid should be here next weekend. You should encourage, because here's the thing, that's the generation. Once their mind is made up, that's where we're going as a country. That's where we're going. I don't even know if we can stop it, but we're going to talk about it next week, and I hope you will be here as we look into the book of Judges. It's the darkest book in the Bible. It's the most depressing book. In fact, if there's one Bible, one book of the Bible I could remove, it would be the book of Judges. But God gave it to us for a reason. And we're going to look at it next week. God, you're an awesome God. You're a faithful God. Even through Israel's disobedience, your mercy was renewed every morning. Your faithfulness was absolutely incredible. And Father, we've seen that you've done your part. We have to do our part. Some of us are here today and we follow you. You're our Savior. You've forgiven us of our sins. We know that we'll go to heaven when we die. But in the day-to-day -day life, we're not battling. We're not, we're, not, we're not getting the enemies out of our life. We're... We're actually allowing them to be squatters in our lives. There's a compromise here and a compromise there. And before you know it, they eat our lunch. And we're like, why can't I be the Christian God wants me to be? Father, I pray that we'll see this week that you've called us to love one another, to be unified with one another. And we're never more like you than when that unity is there. But Father, we'll see next week what happens when we decide, hmm. Maybe we can ignore that, avoid that, pretend that's out of date and the consequences. Just remind us this week as we pray of that phrase that appears over and over in Judges. And there was no king in the land and everybody did what they thought was right in their own eyes and how it led to anarchy and destruction. I can't wait to see what you're gonna do in our lives over the next few weeks as we work our way through these books and we give you the credit now because you're an awesome God in your name.